quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And well, welcome to First Move. Great to be with you as always and much to get to this hour, including echoes of the January 6 U.S. Capitol attacks, this time, though, in Brazil. Hundreds of supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro arrested after a mob stormed government buildings in Brasilia, including the Congress. It was a risk that Eurasia President Ian Bremer predicted way back in 2021. He's back this hour to discuss events in Brazil and his hot list of the key threats coming up in 2023, including a, quote, rogue Russia and China's maximalist President Xi Jinping. And talking of China, too, a final farewell to COVID restrictions and families being reunited for the first time in years. Take a look at those pictures. A live report from Beijing coming up just ahead. Also, a senior Chinese official saying the crackdown on some of the big tech giants is now drawing to a close. That's fueling part of the positive sentiment we're seeing across the Asia session, where stocks extended their New Year rally on Monday. The Hang Seng jumped to a six-month high, while shares in Shanghai rose for a sixth day in a row. What about for the United States? Well, I can tell you, futures are on the rise to begin the week here, too, looking to add to gains from Friday's session when all the major indexes jumped more than 2%. Optimism, I think, after Friday's big December's jobs report indicated a cooling in wage growth and perhaps a sign that the Federal Reserve's rate hikes are beginning to bite. Lots to come here on First Move over the next hour. And our first look takes us to Brazil. Barbaric. That's how Brazilian President Lula da Silva described Sunday's storming of the country's Congress, an event that's drawing comparisons to the January 6th insurrection two years ago in Washington, D.C. Overnight, officials declaring the riots are over. Violence broke out in Brasilia when reporters of former leader Jair Bolsonaro breached the presidential palace. Protesters also occupied Congress and the Supreme Court building, smashing windows and building barricades with furniture. The regional governor says at least 400 people were arrested. The mayhem comes just a week after President Lula was inaugurated. He said a lack of security had allowed Bolsonaro's, quote, fascist supporters to breach barriers and promised everyone responsible for the attack would be punished. CNN Brazil's Pedro Nogueira has more. Hundreds of people are now under arrest after the invasion of the three main government buildings here in Brasilia, Brazil. Supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro broke into the presidential palace, the congressional building and also the Supreme Court building. Rioters left behind a trail of destruction. Huge glass windows were broken everywhere. Works of art were damaged or also stolen. And they even looted weapons at the presidential palace. At the Supreme Court, the minister's chairs were ripped off the building. Supreme Court ordered the governor of Brasilia to be temporarily removed. Justices understand that there was omission in this situation. 
local authorities knew beforehand that the demonstration was underway and did nothing to stop them. Hundreds of buses with rioters drove to Brasilia during the weekend and police did nothing to stop them. President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva will spend the day this Monday meeting with Supreme Court justices and state governors to solve the situation. Pedro Nogueira, Brasilia, CNN Brazil. In the meantime, hugs and emotional reunions at Beijing Airport after three years of being virtually sealed off from the rest of the world. China has finally reopened its borders in a major unraveling of its zero COVID policy. And Selena Wang joins us now from Beijing. Selena, great to have you with us. And I know you were at that airport and witnessing some of those emotional reunions. How did that moment feel like? Because you understand what normally would have happened and the quarantine that these people would have had to go in first before seeing their families. What, what was, the, what was the, those moments like? Yeah, Julia, I mean, it was such a poignant and emotional moment. Mm. I was in that international arrivals waiting area talking to a lot of the family members, and they were saying, I haven't seen my father, my daughter, my mother, my friend for more than a year because of these harsh border restrictions. And it was amazing to just see them reunite with those big hugs, those kisses. There's a moment when a grandfather was appeared to be the grandfather with the granddaughter saying, you've grown a lot because they haven't seen each other in so long. And it was just surreal to be at the Beijing Capital International Airport looking like a normal airport. I've taken so many trips out of that airport where it was a complete ghost town. The only people I was seeing around me were workers in hazmat suits, but now it's really starting to come back to life. Not only did January 8th, yesterday, marked the first time that people coming off of international planes, they could just walk home. They could go walk and directly meet their family instead of getting sent to quarantine facilities for as long as three weeks at a time. It also marked the day where China was going to re-allow outbound tourism from Chinese citizens because before then, China had banned non-essential travel for Chinese citizens. I caught up with the CEO of Trick.com, a large travel booking agency, and this is what they had to say about the pent-up demand from Chinese citizens. We have seen three digits growth in the search volume for almost all the destinations in Asia, in Europe, and in America. It's a record high since the outbreak of COVID. Capacity for these international flights in and out of China is still very limited. They're still very expensive. When do you see both the capacity of flights and the pricing coming back to pre-pandemic levels? Because the demand is exceeding uh, the capacity right now, we expect the, for the first one or two quarters, uh, it will take airlines and hotels some time to rehire back uh, their staffs and build up the infrastructure. Uh, during the second half of this year, hopefully the infrastructure are uh, back to normal. And the CEO of Trip.com also told me that business travelers are exceptionally eager. All of this change is a huge sigh of relief, Julia, for these global corporations and these executives who used to be coming to China once every quarter. And now they haven't been in the country for more than three years. So Jane Sun told me that she's already getting emails from these executives saying, when can I come into China ASAP? I need to go back and see my operations. But look, China's borders, they still do remain largely close to foreigners, except for business or family visits. So we don't know yet when tourism into China will go back to normal. Julia. Yeah, and that's going to be a huge shift too. Um, obviously, the relaxation in 
these COVID restrictions, for the most part, to you point, as you point out, also means a relaxation in testing requirements and the demand for testing kits. And for workers in one testing factory, that means simply no more work. And they've been protesting. What more can you tell us about this? And, and specifically, where is it? Where was it? So this protest broke out in megacity Tongqing. This is at mm. a COVID-19 testing kit factory. And according to these social media videos, it ac- appeared to be a dispute over wages. And if you look at the social media video, you can see this clash between the workers and the police. Some of the videos show workers hurling objects at the police, shouting, give me my money back. So what we know from these Chinese social media videos is that the managers had told them to go on vacation early, which effectively terminated their employment without any prior notice. And those videos, they've now been censored on Chinese social media. Our conversation right now is actually being censored on airwaves in China. I can see it in the screen that's right in front of me, showing what the channel looks like here within mainland China. What is notable, as you mentioned, is that as China is dismantling its zero COVID policy, that does mean massive upheaval for the whole industry and all of the workers that were so supporting the zero COVID enforcement. So we are seeing this turmoil and this protest fits into that as we see the country unraveling zero COVID, trying to get back to normalcy, but a lot of pain and bumpiness in that process. Mm. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that report there. And billionaire business magnate Jack Ma is giving up control of Chinese fintech giant Ant Group. The move comes after Chinese regulators ordered the company to reorganize its business. Paul and Monica joins us now with all the details. Paul, great to have you with us. Jack Ma, well and truly no longer in control. I think we have to be very clear with the audience here. Before this reorganization, he had more than 50 percent control of the company through various different entities. Now, I believe it's just over 8 percent. So it makes a huge difference what's happened here. Yeah, there has been a drastic reduction in the controlling stake or the stake that Jack Ma has, which, as you point out, Julia, is no longer a controlling stake. And what's interesting here is that it seems that Ant Financial was able to get as part of this agreement they were given the green light by Chinese regulators to increase capital for its consumer finance unit. That could be good news for Ant. And I think investors are recognizing that China is starting to relax some of the very strict rules and controls that it put into place over Chinese tech firms over the past few years. So you know, shares of companies like Alibaba, another obviously, uh, you know, company affiliated with Ant Financial, they have surged more than 20% in the US so far this year. And you've seen other Chinese internet stocks like JD.com, Tencent, Baidu, all of them really soaring. So I think there is this expectation, Julia, that China's government is going to be a little bit more uh, loose with the control that it's had over these tech firms, and that is being viewed as very good news. And that was the message as well from the party secretary of the People's Bank of China, suggesting that the overhaul that's been going on within some of these largest tech giants is now um, coming to a close or at least coming towards the end of that. I just wonder, to your point, and we can tie the two things together, perhaps a relaxation of the oversight now that's been on on these tech giants for many months and the idea that perhaps they can raise capital in in alternative ways or be free to do so. What does that mean for the anti-IPO? Because all of this came at the same time as the anti-IPO. And we're talking about what a a business was the size of around $37 billion. Um, 
sort of lost the opportunity to, to IPO. What does it mean yeah. for that? I, I think it still remains to be seen, Julia, whether or not China's government will give uh, Ant the ability to actually go public anytime soon. But the broader question, though, is in an environment like this, we had just a miserable year for IPOs and new stock listings in 2022, obviously because of the market turmoil globally. Is now even the time to be considering going public, despite the enthusiasm that we've had for Chinese stocks in the past couple of days? It's just one week of 2023. I think it's premature to say that even if China allows Ant to go public, would they be able to take advantage of a window that you know may not necessarily be fully open for new stocks just yet? I think Ant even if they had the regulatory approval, they probably wouldn't want to go public until we see other large global unicorns, particularly in the fintech space, try and test those waters first. Yeah, and some of the concerns, perhaps from international investors, if they're allowed to invest in this, um, are laid too, because um, there's still huge concern about what investing in these kind of assets there um, fundamentally means. Uh, Paula Monica, always great to have you with us. Thank you. More layoffs in corporate America now, this time at Goldman Sachs. The bank will park with as many as 3,200 staff this week. That's according to a person familiar with the plans. Goldman, like its rivals, has been hit by a big slowdown in mergers and acquisitions and in IPO activity. CNN's chief business correspondent, Christine Romans, joins us now. Christine, great to have you with us, too. And I think the reason why this has captured people's attention is because it's more, perhaps, than some of their competitors are doing. I just wondered to what extent it's tied, though, to a lack of attrition of workers through the pandemic, too, because they held on to staff during that period. Not only held on to, they added thousands of jobs during the pandemic. Remember, markets were doing very, very well. And uh, the company was um, doing a lot of investment banking activity. So, look, they they held on to and added a lot of workers. And now they're retrenching here. We're told it's 3,200, as you said, about a third of those in the firm's trading and uh, uh, banking units. You're right about IPOs and deals. I mean, when uh, CEOs around the world hear about higher interest rates, global uncertainty, these headwinds in markets, concerns about a global recession, or at least recessions in in Europe and elsewhere next year, that makes them less likely to uh, launch IPOs, makes them less likely to raise capital, makes them less likely to do deals and mergers and acquisitions. And of course, Goldman Sachs makes a lot of money on those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of a- activities. It had 49,100 employees at the beginning of the third and in, in the end of the third quarter, rather. Um, so that's what this is. Thirty two hundred out of um, out of about forty nine thousand. Interesting as well. I was looking at a chart of the stock and, you know, it was only down you know, 10 or 12 percent over the past year or so. It has outperformed the rest of of the market and certainly the S&P 500. But clearly this is a a cautious uh, stance heading into 2023 overall. And it mirrors cautious stances that we've seen mostly in tech, but also Morgan Stanley has announced some layoffs. But uh, Amazon and Salesforce last week, big layoffs there. And again, a, a familiar trend, a different industry, but a familiar kind of pattern. Those are all companies that added a lot of jobs during the COVID-19, the height of the COVID-19 pandemic over the past three years and are now reassessing and retrenching. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? I was just doing the math there where you said that. Um, I think under the chief executive, David Solomon, headcount jumped 34 percent from its levels in 2018 to that 49,000 figure that you mentioned in September 30th. So um, that gives you some perspective, as important as every job is and and as sad as it is for everyone involved. Um, Yeah, important context. Christine, thank you. Nice to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. (laughs) 
Okay, straight ahead. A risk report on 2023. Ugh, where do we start? From a, quote, rogue Russia to an all-powerful Xi Jinping, ongoing protests in Iran and the bite of global inflation, to name just a few. Ian Bremmer of the Eurasia Group explains all. Next. Welcome back to First Move and recapping our top story this morning in Brazil. Supporters of former President Jair Bolsonaro have gone on a rampage, breaching security barriers, breaking into Congress and the presidential palace, the worldwide threat to democracy, something our next guest foresaw. And it's a key element in a list of the biggest risks coming up this year. While Putin's Russia tops the table, China's challenge, social media disruption, global inflation and an isolated Iran also feature plenty to keep you awake at night. Ian Bremmer is president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's also the author of The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. Ian, happy new year and great to have you on the show with us. Um, let's start by talking about Brazil. You warned about this. I've seen you warn as early as 2021 that this was a risk that Brazil may face its own insurrection moment. How significant, though, a threat really is this to the new leadership? Uh, it's a huge threat uh, in the sense that uh, in 38 years of democracy, Brazil has never faced anything like this. You're talking about the direct occupation of the most important buildings of all three branches of government in Brazil, the judiciary, the legislature and the executive. Uh, and with a, a number of members of the police uh, either turning a blind eye or actively helping, uh, we've been here uh, in the United States two years ago. And I talk about this in our top risk document from a few days ago, the fact that the United States, which used to be the principal exporter of democracy globally back in 1989 when the wall came down, today is the principal exporter of tools that destroy democracy. And we're seeing this play out in Brazil right now. The, the polarization, the political extremism, all being driven by conspiracy theories on social media promoted uh, by by populists uh, who use that uh, those tools for their own political benefit. That's exactly what's been played out in Brazil with the election is rigged. We can't allow the establishment to steal it from us. And you've had thousands of Brazilians believing that on the ground and now causing mayhem and damage to the institutions in the country. I mean, you point out some very important parallels, which is that consistency in the questioning of the legitimacy of the electoral process in Brazil, as we saw in the United States as well. Um, I think the military is also an important part of this. There is the belief that, by and large, the military do support Bolsonaro, have sympathy for him. But that's very different from supporting some form of coup d'etat. C can we rule that out? And what about Bolsonaro coming out here and saying, look, OK, uh, we sort of have to move on? Because he could run again in the future. He could establish himself as um, a viable opposition leader and fight again in, in a few years time? Two very good questions. Yeah. Two very good questions, Julia. Uh, so first of all, um, in Brazil, even though you see some members of the local police that are supporting these demonstrators, the Brazilian military leadership has come out strongly in favor of democracy and a peaceful mm. transition they were not willing to join Bolsonaro in saying that the election was rigged. Um, and, uh, and, you know, they've, we've had military rule in recent decades in Brazil. 
They do not want to return to that. And the leaders across the country have made that clear. So in that regard, very similar, thankfully, uh, to what we also have in the United States. Now, Bolsonaro himself has not been the ringleader of these latest protests, even though they are his supporters and they're inspired by him. In fact, he's had nothing to say over the last couple of weeks. He's been, he spent January 1st um, in Mar-a-Lago uh, with Trump ringing in the new year, and now he's in Orlando. Uh, he was at a Publix recently, he's at a Kentucky Fried Chicken, hanging out with a very different kind of colonel uh, than those <laughs> on the ground in Brazil. Uh, I'm sorry to do that to you, Julia. But, but no, the fact is that he, he has had very little to say, um, and that's precisely because if he were directly involved in promoting uh, these demonstrations or financing these demonstrations, the judiciary in Brazil, which clearly opposes Bolsonaro, I wouldn't just call them independent, they have been somewhat politicized, would probably stop him from running again. And he clearly wants to be the leader of the opposition in Brazil, and like Trump, intends to throw his hat in once more. What's the smart move here for him? To condemn this? Uh, the smart move is to condemn it. The smart move is to say that these demonstrators have gone way too far, that they yeah. should be arrested, for those that have broken the law, that he would never support that. He can continue to talk about the election being rigged. He's not happy about the outcome. He never actually conceded. Um, he forced his chief of staff to do that. Uh, but he, he doesn't want to in any way be directly involved or seen as supporting a violent insurrection on the ground in Brazil. That's that's the smart move for Bolsonaro. Lula's approval ratings when he became president this time around in the high 50s, about 58. That's pretty good, but it's quite low for a new president. Lula had been at 90 percent when he was president first time around. Um, I think what Bolsonaro wants to do is wait Lula out as the Brazilian economy becomes more challenging, as his approval ratings go down and maintain support from his base, which could become a much bigger challenge for Lula in a year, in two years' time than it is today. Okay, I want to move on because I could talk about um, this for another five minutes and, um, and not get to top or talk about your top risks. Um, you've described this as the most dangerous year since you've been writing this risk report. Um, in your words, aging dictators and tech bros and, and the consequences as a result for geo and social, I think, political instability are vast. What unites some of the leaders and, and the countries in, in your risk report, whether it's Russia, China, even Iran, is, is a consolidation of power, but a vacuum around them of those that question their decisions and perhaps prevent big mistakes. We can start with, with Russia in this regard. And I think your concern and, and fear with Putin that he's now so isolated that he has and sees little risk in further escalation. That's right. And, and it's also what led him to make the biggest mistake, biggest miscalculation of any major, major leader on the global stage in decades by invading Ukraine uh, back last Feb February. It's so different from Bolsonaro and Trump, who make a lot of mistakes, but are prevented from having massive impact in their country or globally because there are checks and balances. That's not true for po Putin at all. It's increasingly not true for Xi Jinping or for the Iranian Supreme Leader. Um, and in Russia specifically, the, the possibility that Putin would escalate this war, that he cannot win on the ground or in the air in Ukraine, by using weapons of mass destruction or by taking the war to asymmetric uh, fight to, into NATO itself, uh, cyber attacks, drone strikes, espionage, disinformation, fiber attacks, pipeline attacks, all the kinds of things that Iran as a rogue state 
does to its neighbors in the Middle East, we can increasingly see Putin absolutely deciding to do with no one stopping him inside Russia. What about outside Russia? Because as you say, he's Armageddon averse. So that puts some kind of limit perhaps on the on the use of nuclear weapons, if not more saber rattling throughout this year. But also you point out there's no way to walk this back for Putin. So somewhere between there. That's right. Uh, I mean, Armageddon averse is clearly a good thing. And even though there are no domestic constraints, uh, he does understand that he doesn't want an active hot war where the West is launching attacks against Russia itself, against the Russian homeland. But I'll say a couple things there. There's a difference between Russia launching ballistic missiles into Paris and launching cyber attacks of critical infrastructure against, say, Poland. And I think that Putin increasingly is much more willing to do the latter. What about uh, knocking out pipelines and fiber attacks that could be used um, to destroy the European economy? We already know that Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2 were completely sabotaged. Now, the West says that was Russia. Well, if we don't have any evidence of that. If it was Russia, that means that Putin can get away with destroying pipelines and there's nothing else that we're going to do against them. If it wasn't Russia, it means that NATO destroys pipelines. And so why wouldn't Putin? I mean, either way, Julia, you can see how this escalates. And so the danger here is that there's no path back to February 23rd, at least with the Cuban Missile Crisis. We all were staring Armageddon in the eye, and then we backed down. We backed down and, and achieved the status quo ante. There's no way for Putin to back down and get back to where he was before he invaded. NATO will be expanded. The troops will be forward deployed. Ukraine will join the EU and will have much greater military capabilities. Russia will be cut off um, from, from energy uh, supply to Europe. I mean, all of those things are unfixable for the foreseeable future, at least as long as Putin is in power. And he's not going anywhere right now, Julia. And into the mix, uh, the so-called no limits friendship with China self-declared in the weeks before this invasion. China also dealing with, as we've discussed, the release or the, the removal of zero COVID policies, a struggling economy and this friendship that puts them further at odds, I think, with other leaders, particularly in, in the West. What about for what you've called maximalist Xi in 2023 and, and perhaps the idea that all of these problems stunt engagement with the West for the worse of the world? Uh, all, all of these problems certainly make China much more uncertain, much more volatile, much more dangerous. Now, I mean, the good news is that both Putin and both Biden and Xi Jinping really want to avoid a Cold War with each other. And we saw that with the three hour meeting they had at Bali at the G20 uh, just a month ago. Um, but but that doesn't mean that Xi Jinping is is governing in a stable way. He's surrounded himself with yes men. He's not getting good information. And that's why we went from zero COVID to maximum COVID. Everybody gets COVID. It's like Oprah, you get COVID and you get COVID. Um, and they've become the epicenter of COVID once again globally. That makes China more dangerous. It makes them less appealing as a destination for capital. It means that even if there's a decent relationship between the U.S. and China, corporations are going to decouple their investments from China anyway because they're worried about the stability of their own returns. Um, and so, yes, I, I do think this is creating much more risk emanating from the world's second largest economy. Now, China does know that they don't want to be in the same position that Putin is globally. 
And so that friendship without limits has not led to the Chinese providing Russia weaponry. That's come from Iran, it's come from North Korea, other rogue states. China's been careful not to do that in part because they don't want secondary sanctions imposed by the United States and its allies. What I also don't see on your list, and I want to bring this in very quickly here, is um, Taiwan, because you think um, risks of a, a more dramatic altercation or incursion in Taiwan is, is a red herring. You can talk about that. I have about 90 seconds, Ian. Can you give us any good news to wrap this up as well, sure. <laughs> as well Taiwan, please? <laughs> the risk report is for 2023. Mm. And the reason Taiwan is a red herring is because we're just talking about the next 12 months, not the right. next five or 10 years and the critical importance of semiconductors and TSMC, the most important strategic company in the world for the US and for China creates more interdependence and makes a sudden military attack by China much less likely. But you want good news, uh, more broad good news is the resilience of the world's major democracies even given all of these challenges. As I mentioned before, Trump, Bolsonaro, other major democratic leaders, no matter what you think of them, you like them, you dislike them, but if they are constrained from taking sudden and dramatic action because they do have checks and balances. They do have experts around them. There is a differential of opinion and the institutions are resilient. That's much more important in this environment. And it's one of the reasons why US democracy is not at the top of the list, it's towards the bottom. We're divided, we're dysfunctional, but fundamentally we aren't going anywhere. And that, that does come as a relief as we kick off this new year. Yeah, none of these challenges, and we didn't even mention all of them, inflation, energy price shocks erodes the support at this moment for Ukraine. And um, that's a, a vital point, I think, to end on. Ian, great right. to have you with us. Thank you. Ian Bremer there, president and founder of Eurasia Group. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. And the opening bell has sounded on Wall Street this Monday. New stocks are currently up. As you can see, their outperformance for the Nasdaq high by some nine-tenths of one percent as the investors try to build on Friday's gains. A slowdown in U.S. wage growth also is raising hopes that the pace of the Federal Reserve's rate hikes can now also decelerate as pricing pressures ease. Meanwhile, no respite in the oil market. Oil prices jumping around 3 percent after China reopened its borders fully for the first time in three years. The reverberations from that move boosting the outlook for oil demand as hopefully China's economy picks up. All right, let's bring it back to one of our top stories today. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky hailing the resistance in Ukraine's eastern cities. He praised the people of Bakhmut and Solodar for holding out amid the brutal fighting. Meanwhile, Kyiv is dismissing Moscow's claims that a Russian strike killed hundreds of Ukrainian soldiers in Kramatorsk last week. Our Ben Wiedman is there now. Let's get the details. Ben, great to have you with us. What have you found? Well, we went to several of the locations, Julia, where those missiles hit just a few minutes after 11 p.m. on Saturday, and we saw no evidence of casualties whatsoever. Our crew, just a few hours after these strikes, went inside one of the buildings, which was a, a high school. The missile, or the missile landed right in front of it. The blast shattered all the windows, did cause some uh, damage to the facade of the uh, but there didn't seem to have been anybody in that building in the first place. Uh, we also went to another location where there's a very big hole in the ground next to a garage. Uh, but 
also there, no signs of any casualties. Now, we are not far from Kramatorsk's city morgue. There was no unusual activity there, nor any unusual activity at the city's hospitals. So by all the evidence we've heard and, and uh, statements from Ukrainian officials, there doesn't seem to be an iota of truth in the Russian claims that as many as 600 Ukrainian soldiers were killed in these strikes. Julia? Interesting to know, Ben. And also this weekend, of course, Orthodox Christmas celebrations muted, of course, for the people there. What did you find when you were talking to, to families? How did they manage to, to celebrate? Well, Julia, we were in the embattled city of Bakhmut, which has been the scene, as President Zelensky said, of some of the bloodiest fighting of this war. What we found is that the few residents of Bakhmut who remain in that city tried to have a Merry Christmas, but it was not at all a very Merry Christmas. There was no peace, no silence in Bakhmut on the eve of Orthodox Christmas. The unilateral Russian ceasefire never materialized. The guns didn't go silent. At one of the city's shelters, residents gather around a table laid with food and tokens of the holiday. Tatyana, a volunteer, tries to raise spirits. We wish you good health, peace, prosperity and all the best, she tells them. She knows it's important to put on a brave face. Even though it's raining and snowing outside, I'm smiling, says Tatyana. I wish people a Merry Christmas. I try to show them it comes from my soul. She did manage to bring a smile to the only child in the shelter, nine-year-old Volodymyr. And his wish on this day? I want this war to end and all my friends to return, he says. For the adults, the gift under this tree is electricity to charge mobile phones and a wireless router connected to a satellite link-up, allowing for a tenuous connection to loved ones. To reassure them, however they can, that they're still alive, if not well. And here there's warmth in a city where public utilities were knocked out months ago. Yet it's hard to feel the holiday spirit, says Andri. It's so sad, sad, sad day. As the day progresses, snow begins to fall and the shelling continues. Christmas Eve dinner is a subdued affair in this basement, home, for now, to a few of the doctors still left in Bakhmut. God bless us with strength, patience and endurance is Dr. Elena Molchanova's toast. But here, strength has its limits. I feel pain, she says, because I can't be with my family. I can't sit at the same table with my mother and daughter. Christmas morning and no let-up in the shelling. For months, Russian forces have tried to take this city, but so far have failed. But in the process, according to one local official, more than 60% of Bakhmut has been destroyed. At the Church of All Saints, priests hold mass in the relative safety of the crypt. Candles provide the only light and warmth in this 
the darkest of times. And we understand, we understand that fighting has intensified around Bakhmut and the town nearby of Solidar, that particularly in Solidar, there is fierce fighting between Russian and Ukrainian forces in the center of the town. Julia? Ben, thank you so much for that report there. Ben Weedman. All right, still to come. Boiling point in Brazil. Supporters of former President Bolsonaro storm government buildings in a January the 6th style attack. But what comes next after this? Welcome back to First Move and we return to our top story, democracy under attack in Brazil. New this morning, the country's three branches of government officially denouncing Sunday's riots, calling them acts of, quote, terrorism, vandalism, criminal and coup-like. This comes after supporters of ousted President Jair Bolsonaro have started to leave the capital, Brasilia. Protesters who had camped outside the army headquarters were given 24 hours to leave or face being arrested. Yesterday's riot has stormed and vandalized Brazil's Congress, Supreme Court and Presidential Palace, insisting Bolsonaro was the victim of a rigged election. At least 400 people have been arrested. President Lula da Silva promising to bring to justice everyone responsible for the violence. Condemnation of the rioters coming from key figures around the world, too, including U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres, U.S. President Joe Biden and France's President Emmanuel Macron. For more, joining us now is Gustavo Rivero. He's the founder and editor-in-chief of The Brazilian Report. Gustavo, great to have you with us. How have ordinary Brazilians reacted to the scenes that they saw at the weekend? What's the general view? Uh, hello, thanks for having me. Brazilians overwhelmingly disapproved of the scenes we saw in Brasilia yesterday, and we are seeing also the political establishment uh, distancing itself from what happened. Uh, and it's important to notice uh, when we talk about the political reaction to these acts that the Supreme Court has acted swiftly. It has suspended um, the governor of Brasilia for failing to address the crisis and also sending a message to politicians that if they uh, condone, even implicitly, these sort of actions, there will be consequences. Do you think the protests will continue? We've seen, clearly not on this scale, but, but protest building since the election was lost by Jair Bolsonaro back in October and amid this belief that perhaps the election was in some way stolen. Do you think that the protesters give up now or, or what, what next? I would be surprised if this is the last of it, because uh, like you said, this has been building up since the October the 30th runoff. Uh, and actually for years, because Bolsonaro for years has so distrust in Brazilian institutions and has pitted his uh, supporters against democratic institutions. Uh, we saw even a bomb plot being uncovered in Brasilia just days before the inauguration of President Lula. And uh, what we are seeing is that it will require from authorities a very strong and swift reaction. And uh, while that is absolutely necessary. It will. It can also have the, the side effect of strengthening uh, what these coolmongers say, that they are the victims of persecution by the so-called deep state, and Bolsonaro borrows a lot of uh, the, the, the playbook from Donald Trump, so they, 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 they may use this uh, to reinforce 
their agenda and try to destabilize um, the the new government. We have seen that uh, they try they have blocked uh, federal highways that are essential to Brazil supply chains in multiple states and try to barricade uh, oil refineries, which uh, they were not successful in doing that. So I, I would assume that uh, we're going to see these waves of protests um, more often in a way of trying to destabilize the economy and the new government. And Bolsonaro himself posted on social media and, and he pointed to violent protests that have been staged in the past, um, 5,000 youths occupying, I believe, the Congress building back in 2013, protests that were carried out, what, four years later in, in 2017. Clearly, nothing on this kind of scale. But I guess, in some way, the inference is that this is not about him, perhaps, or his supporters. This is about something toxic and corrupt more broadly in the political system. Um, and, and an un. un untrustworthiness, um, perhaps, uh, of politicians. Gustavo, do you have any sympathy for that, for that idea that, that the political system there is corrupt? Well, there is certainly a lot of corruption ingrained in Brazil's political system, but Bolsonaro offers as answer uh, the total denial of politics, and his supporters have for years uh, tried to um, to to essentially call for an armed forces-led coup d'état. It is important to say that the scenes uh, that we saw yesterday are long in the making because uh, in September the seventh, twenty twenty-one, Brazil's Independence Day. Uh, throngs of Bolsonarist supporters were in Brasilia, and uh, we saw the same, uh, a lot of the elements we saw yesterday. Uh, very few police officers barricading the the Three Power Square, where we have the head, uh, the headquarters of all branches of government. Uh, but at that point, the protesters jumped the gun and actually uh, stormed uh, uh, the barricades uh, on the eve of the scheduled protests, and that forced the governor of Brasilia to respond with increased police force. Uh, to, uh, yesterday, they were more disciplined, which allowed them to do what uh, I believe it was uh, their intention for for a long time now. Um, so uh, it's impossible to to not to take face value what Bolsonaro is saying because he steered these folks for years. So mm. if we are seeing what we're seeing, it is uh, the, the president is the, the first one to be blamed. Yes. The former president, and sorry. To your point, years in the making. Um, Gustavo, great to get your insights. Thank you. Gustavo Guerrero, the, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Brazilian Report. Okay, coming up after the break, British ingenuity at its finest. Virgin Orbit is set to join SpaceX and others launching commercial satellites into space, but using a modified passenger jet. Yes, you heard me. That story next. Welcome back to First Move. In a few hours' time, Richard Branson's Virgin Orbit will attempt to launch several satellites into space using a modified jumbo jet. If all goes well, it'll also be the first time a rocket has been launched into space from UK soil. The Boeing 747, called Cosmic Girl, will carry the rocket to a height of 35,000 feet and release it into orbit. Tom Foreman is looking forward to the launch, as are we. I mean, there's lots to discuss here. The fact that this is happening from the United Kingdom, which is exciting in itself. But um, the launch vehicle itself, Tom, I think we have to begin there. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary what's what's going on here. This is every space... Uh, every space mission is unique 
Mm. What Virgin Orbit has been doing for years has been very unique because they've been working toward this model of having a jumbo jet haul this up into the air, let it go. It drops for about four seconds or angled pretty sharply up at about almost 30 degrees. It drops for about four seconds and then suddenly it accelerates to 8,000 miles an hour. It's a very risky maneuver in many ways. I mean, this is not something to be undertaken lightly and, and can't really be compared with the launching of missiles from airplanes, which has gone on for a long time, because it's so much bigger, it's so much more powerful. But here's an interesting point here, Julia. One of the ideas that Virgin Orbit has had all along was that by using this type of launch platform, by launching it from a plane, they can turn a lot of nations into space launching nations, not just nations that develop satellites and develop plans for them and then ship them somewhere else to have them launched. Now they can launch them at home. That's one of the reasons it's so exciting that it's happening where it's happening today, Julia. Yeah, and to your point as well, it opens up all sorts of opportunities around the UK and, of course, to your point, other areas around the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's quite a, technologically, this is a, a pretty remarkable piece of equipment out there. You know, what I described a minute ago, it is, it is not easily done. But if it's done, not only does it allow a lot of nations to get involved in doing this sort of thing, but it also opens up uh, an ability, and this is a little bit technical, but it's interesting, to put satellites quickly into unusual or eccentric orbits. That's harder to do from ground-based facilities because you have to figure out exactly how you're going to get all the physics working to make your rocket go where you want. Well, if you can take a plane up and point it any direction you want from anywhere in the world you want, you may be able to have satellites that respond, especially these small satellites, little CubeSats and things like that. You may be able to launch them for very specific purposes in a shorter period of time and that could serve a niche in the market that maybe isn't served quite so easily right now. That's part of what Virgin Orbit has been going after for a long time. And I'll tell you, Julia, I know a lot of this in part. My, my daughter, actually, who is an aerospace engineer, helped develop uh, this rocket over time. She no longer works for Virgin Orbit. But, but we had a lot of discussions about what's happening in space overall. That's one of the ideas behind this, flexibility in space that is harder to achieve from a land-based launch platform. That's fascinating. Do, yeah. I have about 30 seconds. What about the relative cost difference does, is that the point? It's far cheaper to do it this way, perhaps, even with the collapsing costs that we've seen. I've got 20 seconds. I, I'm being told off. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's really the cost thing. I, I hesitate to talk a lot about cost right now because space missions are so unusual in their nation. It takes one failure, one success to change the cost mm. equation dramatically. Hmm. Thank you so much. We'll reconvene on this conversation. And congratulations on having an awesome daughter. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Okay, that's it for the show. As always, I hope talk. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.